All right, ready for Revelation? We'll be in Revelation chapter 17 today. Once you got it, let's stand together and read it. Um, quick reorientation around what where we are. Um, so two weeks ago, two Sundays ago, I preached from Revelation uh, 16. Um, Revelation 15 and 16, I believe. And I told you that Revelation 15 and 16, the vision of um, seven bowls being poured out, um, is the final of three visions that are connected. So there's seven seals, seven trumpets that are blown, and then seven bowls. Those are all three visions that, that paint a picture of God pouring out his wrath, and they're all intensifying. So um, the seals is the least intense, the trumpets is the middle intense, if that's a word, and the uh, bowls are the most intense picture of God pouring out his wrath. And that covers Revelation chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 15, and 16. So that was two weeks ago. Um, in the middle of all of that, in Revelation 7 and 11, there are two interludes, if you will. And what these interludes are doing is they're showing the state of the people of God uh, while in the middle of uh, showing pictures of God's wrath. So it's like, wrath, wrath, wrath. Here's a reminder, people of God, this is your future. Wrath, wrath, wrath. Here's a reminder, people of God, this is your future. In Revelation 7, that's a vision of the multitude around the throne of every nation, tribe, tongue that no one could count, and they're all singing praises. And Revelation 11 is God's people being resurrected. Um, I'm not going to preach that. We're going to skip that because last week what we did was about as close to a tangible experience of that that we could get. Um, I couldn't, I can't describe being around the throne um, as good as actually doing it last week could give you a feel for that. Does that make sense? So when we did our um, worship and singing God's praises and glory, we were living Revelation 7. So if you wonder, are we going to preach it? No, because you lived it. Um, what the next two weeks are, this week and next week, they go into further detail of what God's judgment looks like. Um, so this week will be God's judgment on this thing called Babylon. Next week will be God's judgment on the devil and death and hell. So it'll be really cool. Um, it'll be kind of heavy, but it's uh, John narrating God's victory. So it might be kind of heavy, but this is celebration that God is victorious. So that's where we are in all of this. Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. Um, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Um, that's the beast from Revelation chapter 12 that or the beast from um, Revelation chapter uh 16 that that I said was the the anti-god earthly power or the throne at the time um, so this woman sitting on the throne that has that was full of blasphemous names and it had seven heads and ten horns the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold um, gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality and on her forehead was written the name of the of mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why are you marveling at her? 
I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. What that was, that was a parody on um, basically mocking the beast. So Jesus introduces himself in Revelation 1 as, I, I, I was and I am and I will be the one who is, who was, and will forever be. This is the exact opposite. He was and he is not, and he's going to rise again, but that's just like to be lifted up so God can destroy him. This is like he's the exact opposite of who our God is. Um, and the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast." Um, what that was, the beast, the throne, seven horns or heads, seven kings and kingdoms, ten heads, other ten other kings or kingdoms who will all form an alliance and work together. This is Roman history. Um, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is the other... One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Did I just read the same thing over? Oh, well, can never ask too much Bible. Um, why didn't y'all tell me? Uh, <laughs> these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lord and kings of kings. And those who with him who are and those with him are called and chosen are called and are called chosen and faithful. That's what it should say. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are people and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Then we're moving into chapter 18. This is a song that's celebrating what we just read. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. They're saying this great city has turned into a ghost town now. And for all, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich for the power of her luxurious, from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, 
as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her like a measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Um, Father, thank you for your word. Speak to us today. Uh, Give us understanding of that which you want us to know. Give us clarity. Above all, we want you, Jesus. Forgive us you, Lord. Amen. You can can be seated. The um, title we're going to put on this today is uh, All Falls Down. All Falls Down. And and in that one phrase, we get encouragement, comfort, and direction. So it all falls down. Um, Found myself... Uh, when I was in about the sixth grade, standing in the 24-inch gap between uh, the foot of my bed and um, my dresser in my room. Um, and here I am down here, four foot eight, um, 70 pounds soaking wet if I had a big dinner, looking up at um, this massive dresser. I mean, it was at least six inches taller than me. It was huge and definitely about five times my size. And on top of it was... Um, some of y'all still have one of these in your house. Um, these the big old black box TVs with the big old butt sticking out on the back of it. You know what I'm talking about? Things like 108 pounds. So it's on top of my dresser, this big old dresser with this big old TV. And I'm watching this thing fall towards me. Um, I, I thought I could be chipping Joanna Gaines and re, and re, uh, uh, remodel my room and move stuff around, but I didn't know that when you push the bottom of the thing at the legs, it's going to fall over on you. So here I am looking at this big thing coming at me, heart racing, eyes pacing left and right, thinking, how can I get out of this thing? If I don't get from under this thing, I'm going to get caught up in the fall. So I, well, here I am. I made it out, obviously. Um, but, but, but I felt this sense of urgency to distance myself from this, to me, what was a colossal structure falling, lest I get caught in its fall. You catch that picture, you've caught the whole point that John is painting for us in this passage. Um, um, let, you, you've seen that scene in movie. Pick your favorite version of the Power Rangers as all five or six of them are jumping out of a building as it's about to collapse on itself because they don't want to get caught in its fall. Um, I, I saw this cartoon, uh, Star Wars, which I don't watch, so I can't name the characters, but unnamed character number one uh, bombed this wall that unnamed character number two was on, so unnamed character number two jumps off of the thing because he didn't want to get caught in the fall. It's the common picture of distancing yourself from this massive structure that's coming down lest you get caught in the fall. Um, that, that's the point that John's given to us today. That's, that's the call that Jesus is calling us to today. He's saying, he's saying, you Christians who find yourself in front of, in the midst of a colossal structure, you come out of that structure lest you get caught in its fall. That's the picture. So what I want to do today, I want to ask these questions. What is the structure? What's its fall look like? How does it look like to come out of it? Sound good? First question, what's the, what's the structure? What's the structure? John, he begins this vision by painting a picture. He says, I, I see a prostitute. Um, if you're a guest, welcome to Christ Church. If you're a non-Christian, welcome to Christianity. He, he said, I see a prostitute. Um, in the Old Testament, um, there are two times where God, or two ways God refers to, um, people as prostitutes. 
Um, the first way he does it is he's talking to the nation of Israel, his people. And he's saying, you're, you're prostituting yourself. You, you're cheating on me and devoting yourself to another God or nation. That's one way. Another way, God will talk to foreign nations, nations that don't worship him. And he's saying, y'all are prostituting because y'all are seducing my people away from me. I think the second one is what's happening here. So, so John, when he says, I saw a prostitute, he's saying, I saw something that's pulling people's devotion away from God. What, what is this thing? Um, scholars, they, 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 they have varying um, opinions on what exactly, what the nature of this thing is. So a guy named uh, Robert Mount says, this is, a, this is a godless system that pulls people away from God. Um, another scholar, Phil Moore, says this is a, a spirit that pulls people away from God. I, I put both of those definitions together and said, let's split the middle. Let's call it a force that pulls people away from God. And then, and then, and then John, he says, her name is Babylon. In the Old Testament, Babylon was a place. Babylon is where, um, the people of God went, uh, when they were in exile. Babylon is the exact opposite of Jerusalem, which was the hometown of God's people. In Jerusalem, God ruled. In Babylon, everything was anti-God's rule. Not, not just different from God, not just uh, uh, opposite of God, but opposing God, anti-God, if you will. So what I think John, the picture he's painting, he's saying there's an anti-God force that's pulling people away from God. And when he's saying you're in Babylon, you're, you're, you're in Babylon, you're in this place, he's saying you're in the midst of this anti-God force that's pulling people away from God. Can I just say, first, here's the point. All God's people live in the midst of an anti-God force that pulls people away from God. That's the point. But can I just say, can I argue that the scripture and history would suggest that this is norm, the normative experience for Christians. If I put a picture on it, Christians, before, until Jesus comes back, we live in Babylon, not Jerusalem. You, you hear me? It, it's normal. This is the norm for us to live in this. Peter in First Peter, when he's writing to the church, you know what he calls her? Elect exiles. That's Babylon language. The people of God who are living in the midst of this anti-God force. Not just the Bible. History shows this. Take out a thousand years in one sliver of the world and the rest of the church throughout all of time and in all of places has lived in a place where this anti-God force is at work. So, so, so can I have a quick conversation with some of my friends. I hope you don't feel as if this would be too pointed or attacked, but I want to talk to my friends who might be um, at least 50. Uh, grew up probably around these parts in the Midwest. Um, grew up Christian, probably in a predominantly um, white Christian community. And you, you, you experienced a childhood to where society and culture catered to your Christian values and beliefs. And now in the last decade or two, you're, you're watching that slip away. You're watching society go further and further and further away from what you knew, what, what catered to you. Can I suggest that when we see this, we'd be disappointed, but not surprised? Can, can I say we'd be, we'd be disappointed because anything less than the reign of God on earth is a disappointment, but I can't be surprised because Babylon's being Babylon. I can't be shocked about this because she's being who she's always been. 
Uh, um, in, in this in this passage that we just read, John's original audience probably read this and interpreted it as being the Roman Empire, but I think the Roman Empire was just a tool that Babylon was working through. Today, Babylon works through all societies that we live within. We, we, we live in the midst of an anti-God force. Let's be disappointed, but not surprised about it. Have you seen her? Have you seen her working? Have you seen her pulling people away from God? That's why John says, she, John says she's a prostitute. John says the nations of the earth have gotten drunk off of her. Have you seen her pull people away? Have you seen people's values, perspectives, beliefs, thought processes, behaviors? Have you seen them all drift further and further away from God? You've seen people in your own life. Have you seen her? Have you seen her promise good things in return? That's why John says she's, she's pretty. So she's real, she looks real good to people. She's, she's enticing. What she'll do is she'll dangle something good in front of you, fixate you on that thing, and then convince you that there's personal gain, something that you like on the other end of that pursuit. Have you seen her? Have, have you seen her fixate people? I don't know, maybe on their sexual expression, heterosexual and homosexual expression, all kinds of sexual expression fixate themselves on that thing and think if I just pursue that, not God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'll get satisfaction out of that. Have you, have you seen her? Have you seen her fixate people on a person or, or a thing? And they say, if I pursue that person, if I pursue that thing with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, not God, then I'll get comfort and satisfaction out of that thing. Have you seen her? Have you seen her produce all kinds of evil? John says she has a cup in her hand and it's full of abominations and uh, immoralities or idolatries. That's a blanket term for evil. And just the, in the same way God pours out his cup on people, Babylon, she'll, she'll, she'll pour, her, pour her cup in your mouth too. And it says the nations get drunk on her wine. That's, that's a picture of you're not, she'll draw you into evil into a way to where it's like you're not even in your right mind. You get, you'll be absolutely delusional by her and doing evil. The other day, somebody was telling me about somebody. I'm hearing this story about this thing this person did that was absolutely evil. And my first response was, did they have a brain? I don't see how any person with sense can do something that evil. They might have been drunk. Might have been drunk on Babylon's wine. Have you seen her? Have, have you seen her motivate uh, people in political power? John says she's riding the back of the beast. That's the throne, remember? That means she's steering the throne. John says that, that kings, rulers, commit sexual immorality with her. People in power devote themselves to her or are motivated by her. I'm not anti-state. I'm not anti-government. I am saying I've seen people in politics do some evil stuff that looks like it was a personal game. And I think you have too. I've seen people in politics commit themselves to an agenda or an action that everyone knows is evil, but they get something good out of that. Have you seen her? Here's my last one. Have you seen her pull people from all places? John says she's standing on waters, and these waters represent multitudes and peoples and languages and nations. This is him saying she's got a universal pool. She doesn't pull people in just one place. I don't know. Maybe I'm not the only one that's noticed that America ain't the only place where evil stuff happens. I can't be the only one that notices that there, there are mass exterminations of humans in other countries. 
There are mass kidnappings of people in other countries. There, there are absolutely evil rulers in other countries. Ha, ha, have you seen her? She's everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean she's everywhere. This guy, Phil Moore, I referenced him earlier. I read this week. He said, throughout history, one thing that Christians has done mistakenly is we've seen, we've, we've, we've considered Babylon, this anti-God force, to be synonymous with culture and society. And we think so long as we're just not culture, so long as we're just not society, we're good. And then we let our guards down and Babylon sneaks her way into our back door and infiltrates our families and communities. Have you seen it? Look at this quote Fillmore says. He says, the spirit of Babylon's full frontal attack is to embed herself so deeply within a Christian culture that Christians still think her way even after conversion. Even after you get baptized and join the church, you might still think her way. And she will whisper promises of sex, wealth, and pampered luxury. Whatever it takes to catch their eyes and ensnare their hearts. If necessary, she'll put on religious clothes, driven on by her unquenchable thirst to replace living faith with dead religion. She will turn Christian ministry into a springboard for power, fame, and self-fulfillment. And she will even trick the most passionate builders of the New Jerusalem into laying bricks for Babylon. Have you seen her? You you don't believe me. George Whitfield, one of the greatest American preachers known to date, while he was lighting up the East Coast with his revivals, he was actively involved in politics advocating for chattel slavery because he thought it would be good for the state of Georgia financially. You don't believe me. Jonathan Edwards, another great American preacher, while he was lighting up the pulpit, while fire was coming down, we we have sermon manuscripts of his written on the back of receipts that he bought slaves with. She might infiltrate the church. I don't need to talk about historical figures. Some of you have been hurt, abused, exploited by people in church because they thought they were getting personal gain out of it. Have you seen her? Uh, I know you've seen her. I know you've seen her because like me, you, your heart has sighed like my heart sighed. You've cried like I've cried. You've, you, you've been angry like I've been angry. You felt like this thing was colossal in the same way I've felt like this thing was colossal. I, I mean, human trafficking, modern day slavery is a $150 billion industry right now. There are 40 million people that we know of caught up in it. There are 40 to 50 million babies killed each year in this world that we know of. There are 100,000 sex abuse, uh, reported sexual abuses. That's what we know of in this country each year. This thing might look massive. You've seen her. You've seen her. All of God's people live in the midst of this anti-God force at work. But here's the good news of the picture. That big old structure is going to have to fall at some point. She's coming down. That, 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 that's what this picture is. How, how does she come down? How does she come down? John says that the beast or the throne and all of these kings, these anti-God earthly authorities end up hating Babylon turning on Babylon, leaving her naked, desolate, and burning her down. And it says, God made them do it. What? God put his hand in the heart of evil authorities and made them turn on this evil force. And then the evil force dies down. And here, I'll let you know how the end of the story ends. In Revelation 19, those evil authorities end up dying too. 
This guy said, uh, I'm paraphrasing him when he said, at the least this passage so shows us that there is a seed of self-destruction in everything that opposes God. Because God put that seed there. God turned their hearts against one another and made them all fall down within the, on themselves. And then I, uh, John, at the end of verse 8 that I just read, he says, yeah, that's God mighty. That's God's might. It's no surprise that he does it like that because he's mighty. John says, mighty God will make it all fall down. Uh, what's God's might look like? There's a guy named Alec Motier who believes that Isaiah is painting a picture of God's might in uh, Isaiah 9 when Isaiah uh, talks about the Midianites and mighty God. You remember what happened with God and the Midianites? Uh, story time with uh, Jerron. Story time with Jerron. This is going to be in the new Jerron translation um, coming out next year. Um, so there's this cat named Gideon. Uh, Gideon's young, uh, hiding in... Um, hiding somewhere because the Midianites had stormed into Gideon's country, uh, wiped everything out, made themselves at home. So Gideon found himself hiding. As he's hiding, God walks into the room and is like, what's up, mighty man of valor? Um, I'm going to choose you to defeat the Midianite, those who've been uh, plumbing to you for decades. Fast forward a few uh, episodes and Gideon, he's recruited an army of 32,000 people probably significantly larger than the Midianites. So Gideon's got to be thinking, this is the favor of God on my life. I just uh, recruited this massive army. God looks down on Gideon and his army and says, "Uh." God sounds like that. "Uh." I know, I hear him talk audibly. I'm joking. God says, "Uh." that's too many people. So, so, so God says, here's what I want you to do, Gideon. Everybody who's scared and don't want to fight, let them go home. So Gideon's got to be thinking, God, I got some ride or die. These are some riders. We're thugs. We, hey, hey, we ain't never scared. So Gideon, he just kind of says, hey, if you're scared, go home. He turns around and 22,000 people get up, pack their bags, and they're like, I'm out. So here's Gideon left with 10,000 people. And he's like, okay, 10,000 this is still, this will still do. We can go to war with him. And God says again, that might be too many people. So then Gideon's like, what God? And God said, shut up. I'll kill you. This is the Old Testament. I'm joking. God didn't say that. So, so, so God said, what God did say, he said, take them down to the river. And everyone who gets on all fours and drinks like a dog, that's who you roll with. Everybody else, you turn, tell them to go back home. So Gideon's like, great, that's easy. We can do that. Gideon takes them down to the river. And this just so coincidentally happens to be the day where 9,700 of those 10,000 soldiers brought water bottles and straws and start drinking proper. And only 300 of them start drinking like a dog. So here's Gideon left with 300 men. And he probably thinks, great, I've seen the movie. We can work with 300 dudes. Let's compensate. Let's get the best weapons. Apparently, God thought that was an issue because we fast forward and see Gideon has gone to battle with trumpets, jars, and torches. Trumpets, jars, and torches. So Gideon, he gets his people together, huddles them all up, and they're like, Gideon, what's the game plan? And Gideon's like, I spent time with God. Here's what we're going to do. So we're going to surround him. 100 of y'all get over here. 100 of y'all get over there. 100 of y'all get over there. They're like, they've got, they've got to be like, this sounds great, surrounding them. Then Gideon says, I'm going to blow my trumpet, and you blow your trumpet at the same time. 
they've got to be like, ooh, surprise, disorientism. How are we going to attack? And Gideon says, this is going to be our best move. You break your jars and you yell a sword for the Lord. Phenomenal plan. And so fast forward, these dudes actually surround, they actually yell, they actually blow their trumpets, they actually break their jars, they actually do all that stuff. And it says, right when they do that, the Midianites who are surrounded wake up, God confuses them, and they start killing themselves. They wipe themselves out. Looking back, Gideon really didn't do much, did he? I mean, unless you consider blowing a trumpet a lot. I think God defeated that army. God showed his might. How did God show his might? God showed his might by using the Midianites as the means to defeat the Midianites. And Isaiah says, that's God's might. What's a picture of God's might? God's might means that God can use his enemies as the means to defeat his enemies. God's might is that God can use his enemies as a tool to defeat his enemies. When John says God is mighty to do this, he's saying, listen, everyone who's looking at Babylon, everyone who sees that big structure, remember your God is a mighty God and he can make it all fall down. How? He will use his enemies as the means to make that thing fall down. Maybe you've sat where I've sat in summer of 2020. In June, I believe it was, I sat on my couch and I found myself, if you'll let your pastor share a human experience, I found myself in probably one of the most despairful, if if that's a word, despairful moods that I've ever um, been in, uh, looking out at all that was happening in the world. And it was that kind of despair where turning the TV off wasn't enough, knowing the kind of evil in the world weighed me down and brought me down to this sense of, of despair. I thought, God, this evil is embedded too deep within humanity to be eradicated. It's spread too wide throughout humanity to be reversed. And I found myself in this spot of this structure is massive. This thing is colossal. Ain't no turning it around. Some of you might have felt, the, might feel the same way I felt. And if you're in that boat, God comes to you and he says, listen to me, I'm a mighty God. I'll make it all fall down. What's your comfort? Your comfort isn't in your faith in humanity. Your comfort isn't in no politician. Your comfort isn't in no government structure. Your comfort isn't in being blissfully ignorant of the things in the world to make yourself feel better or numb. Your comfort is in knowing that God can make it all fall down. He's, he's our comfort in knowing that he can make it all fall down. If you need confidence for that comfort, just look at how he already made stuff fall down. Isaiah, in that same breath where he looked back at God showing his might with the Midianites, he looks forward to God coming again in his might. Um, here goes Christmas way too early. Thanksgiving's this week, but we'll talk about Christmas. Isaiah, he, he talked about mighty God coming and he said, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Uh, on his shoulders, the government will rest. And he will be called what? Wonderful counselor. And he will be called what? Here it is. Mighty God. Who, who is this? I'm, I'm talking about Jesus. Uh, I'm saying Satan became his enemy. Death became his enemy. Sin became his enemy. That mighty God became humanity. And he made one of his enemies the means to defeat those enemies. Jesus, he took on death to defeat Satan. He took on death to defeat sin. He took on death to defeat death itself. He died on Friday. He rose on Sunday. And that resurrection is the confidence is uh, the confirmation of that victory. I'm saying now 
he lives forever in victory. Christ got up and he defeated those things. Christ got up and demons fell. Christ got up and sin fell. Christ got up and Satan fell. Christ got up and it all fell down. And looking back at how that first time he got up and made those things come down, I can look out into the world now and know that since he got up, I know Babylon's coming down. Since he got up, I know evil's coming down. Since he got up, I know he's bringing exploitation down. Since he got up, I know he's bringing uh, prejudice down. Since he got up, I know he's bringing greed down. Since he got up, I know he's bringing abuse down. Since he got up, I know he's bringing it all down. He's my confidence. He's my comfort. He's, he's going to make it all fall down. And because it's falling down, here's the urgency. He says, you got to get away from her. Right, that's, that's, what, that's what the angel says here in verse 4. The angel says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you, get, lest you share in her plagues. He's saying, come out of her now. You don't want to get entangled in her. You don't want to get trapped in her. You, you get in an entanglement with her right now, you'll be caught up in her fall. You'll be caught up in her, in her destruction. Come out of her now. This is a call to separate ourselves from this anti-God force. This is a call to separate ourselves from things this force is fixating our, us on. This is a call to separate ourselves from the, from the personal gain that it dangles in front of us. This is a call to completely separate ourselves. There's this guy named Thomas Chalmers. He says, um, the human heart is made to fixate and pursue on, pursue something, which means Babylon, she's, exploiting the human heart as it's designed. We're made to fixate on something. We're made to pursue something. So she says, fine, I'll fixate you on something and I'll get you to pursue that thing. This guy, Thomas Chalmers, he says, because of that, you can't just tell yourself, stop being fixated on and pursuing the things of the world. It it, it doesn't work that way. Some of you know, because you've tried it, how it worked for you. So this guy, Thomas Chalmers, here's what he says. We have a quote, he says, the ascendant power of a second affection will do what no exposition, however forcible, of the folly and worthlessness of the first ever could effectuate. He's saying, if you want to come out of Babylon, if you want to get your heart set on something else, get, get your heart redirected away from Babylon, you got to set it on something better. You can't just tell yourself how bad Babylon is. We must address the eye of our mind with another object, with a charm powerful enough to dispossess the first of its influences and engage ourselves in some other prosecution as full of interest and hope and congenial activity as the former. The heart cannot be prevailed upon to part with the world by a simple act of resignation. Once again, you can't just say stop. But but may not the heart be prevailed upon to admit into its preference another, his name's Jesus, who shall subordinate the world and bring it down from its wanted ascendancy. If the throne which is placed there must have an occupier, and the tyrant now that reigns has occupied it wrongfully, he may not leave a bosom which would rather detain him than be left in desolation. But may he not give way to the lawful sovereign, appearing with every charm that can secure his willing admittance and taking unto himself his great power to subdue the moral nature of man and to reign over it. He's saying, if you want to separate yourself from the world, if you want to turn your heart from the world, no, don't run from the world. Fixate yourself on Jesus. 
see something better, see something more beautiful, see something more attractive, see something more compelling, see Jesus. So here's what I'm saying. Separate from Babylon by, by setting yourself on Jesus. Believers and those of you who wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, both. I'm saying whatever it is you're fixated on, Jesus is so much better. See, see him for a second and watch what your heart does. Let, let me give you a kickstart. I'm done with this poem I read. I heard um, Gardner Taylor. If you've never heard him preach, you should. He's amazing. Here's a poem he read about Jesus' beauty. He says, he was born contrary to the laws of birth and died triumphant over the laws of death. He was born in poverty, but wise men brought their riches and laid them at his feet. He was cradled in another's crib, sailed on another's boat, rode on another's animal, supped in another's upper room, laid in another's tomb, but to him belong the unsearchable riches of glory. The earth is his and the fullness thereof and the cattle on a thousand hills are all his. He never wrote but once in that the disappearing sands of the temple, but all the libraries of the world can't contain the books that have been written about him. We know of one instance only in which he sang a hymn, but the most creative geniuses of melody have brought their purest gifts and laid them reverently at his feet. As a baby, he frightened the king. As a child, he perplexed the elders and the doctors. As a man, he made the seas be still and boisterous waves lie down upon the bosom of his gentle command. Sin couldn't resist him. Satan couldn't seduce him. Sinners couldn't withstand him. Death couldn't destroy him. The grave couldn't hold him. He's a friend in loneliness. He's strength in weakness. He's health in weakness. He's wholeness when we are wounded. He's the widow's pension. He's the prisoner's pardon. He's the exiles recall to citizenship. He's the orphan's adoption. He's, he's been my friend for so long. He's led my feet. He's guided me. He's protected me. He's been my brother, my bridge, my hope, my strength, my light, my life, and my peace, and so much more. And to all that, I say amen. He's that and so much better. Listen to me, whatever you're fixated on, he's better. And set yourself on him. Can I pray for us? Father, Jesus, thank you for who you are. You're beautiful. You're glorious. There's unsearchable riches of your glory, Jesus. There's more of you than we could ever know, than we could ever fathom. You're, you're better than we could express or imagine. You're, you're so beautiful. Show us who you are. Open our eyes to who you are. Reveal your beauty to us. To Call us to look upon you. We thank you that you're going to make it all fall down. Thank you for your victory. Thank you for this certainty today that the evil that we see, that all that is against you will fall down. We thank you. Amen.